Hello and welcome to Ethical AI. This is where you're going to hear how leaders in policy, academia and technology consider the role of artificial intelligence along with its moral, social and political implications. Here is your host, Elena Nadenova. Hello, everybody. This week, we have a very, very exciting episode for you. We're joined by two experts, clinical experts from the NHS, Dr. Shane Gordon uh, and Dr. Ashish Sain. I'll let them introduce themselves in a second, but they're both bringing very exciting practical clinical perspectives on the use of technology in the NHS and more widely on the transformation that we're facing at the moment um, in the UK. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, would you mind introducing each other? Um, so, Shane, would you mind going first? Thank you, Lena. Uh, I'm Shane Gordon. I'm Director of Strategy, Research and Innovation at East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust. And Ash? Uh, uh, thank you for having me, Alina. My name is Ashish. Uh, I'm a junior doctor at the same trust, and I've been an AI developer for the last three years, and I'm quite keen on improving digital aspects of healthcare delivery. Brilliant. I'm very, very excited to have you both here because uh, we've we've had varied conversations. Uh, they've offered perspective on the use of AI in, in, in clinical practice from um, technology development perspective, innovator perspective, policy perspective, um, and academics. And you are the first few guests uh, to offer some insight from uh, both the clinician's perspective, but also from um, the implementer's perspective. And I think that's a, a very, very important point uh, that I'm very curious to unpick with you. Before we start, I'm really interested to um, initially get your thoughts on what do you think has really changed over the last 18 months in your day-to-day roles um, and how much of this do you see continuing moving forward versus um, kind of an, an emergency type of response to, uh, to the pandemic? I mean, in terms of, of roles, we've I've certainly had a a temporary role um, managing the response to the pandemic from the testing perspective. I've, I've been the incident, local incident director for pathology, so I've managed our um, building up of capability uh, to be able to provide COVID testing to to a very high volume. Actually, um, there's been a lot. We've used AI in that uh, process a lot, specifically robotic process automation. Um, to streamline the transfer of information between different uh, laboratory and clinical systems and through to data visualisation uh, layers as well for management information and infection control. Um, and we've also uh, integrated uh, user end automation for self-requesting and registration of things like uh, lateral flow tests that you can do at home so we can you you can record the results of a lateral flow test in our trust in about 20 seconds uh, using uh, a web app that then is picked up through uh, a combination of uh, automation tools in office 365 then some robotic process automation into the lab system 
through the instruments, uh, well, not, not for lateral flow tests, but into the lab system, reporting upwards to the national systems um, and reporting onwards to infection control. So really good, good integration all along the pathway. Right. Um, I, I mean, Shane certainly has a bird's eye view over things because of the position of it. And at a more ground level at the hospital, I think uh, automation and digitization, like Shane said, help manage the workflow. We could deal with uh, a high turnover of patients because the system was digital. We could triage digi digitally. We could, you know, look at the observations, if you will, digitally test reports. And that helped make faster, easier, and more efficient decisions in knowing which patients would require more intensive care, which patients could possibly be managed at home. And um, really, I think I think uh, digitization and automation, if if anything, has been boosted, if you will, by the pandemic. And do you, do you think that level of automation is here to stay or is this something that's temporarily needed at the back of the pandemic um, and will go back to business as usual? No, not at all. I think it's definitely um, here to stay. I think we've seen clinical and operational teams um, becoming much more familiar with the use of, uh, firstly, um, analytics data being uh, provided some of it predictive analytics in terms of you know, what you what we would expect in the next week in terms of COVID cases, but you can apply that methodology to a range of different um, conditions that show you know seasonal variation, for example. So they're, they're, what we've noticed is their appetite for that kind of analysis has greatly increased from where it was pre-pandemic because they've had to use it in the pandemic. It was kind of essential to survival of the organisation uh, and our patients through that um, through that period. But I think having been familiarised with it, they're generating a whole raft of new ideas for what they'd like to see in terms of presentation of data to understand their business, to streamline it and support their patients better. I think we're also seeing an increased appetite for remote monitoring. There are clearly opportunities for um, analytics and prediction uh, in the data streams that come from that remote monitoring to highlight potential problems uh, and reduce the amount of human intervention required for just looking at numbers, for example. And I think in the back office processes, the value of the of the robotic process automation has been very clearly demonstrated during the pandemic i think there's a there's a whole other layer that we will i think see we're, we're seeing increasingly which is uh where i where ash and i coincide in our in our interest which is the use of um prediction in, in clinical management to support timely decisions well, well, certainly. I mean, um, healthcare is quite a traditional field, if I may say so. It's very risk averse, and sometimes to its benefit, sometimes to to its detriment. Really, in fact, uh, I mean, the first statement in the Hippocratic Oath is, you know, for I shall do no harm, and that just goes on to reflect the mentality uh, we hold as as a community of clinicians that, you know, if you can't make the patient better, at least let, let's not make them worse. So this risk-averse behaviour, I think this was certainly challenged 
by the pandemic. We we needed to come up with faster, more efficient, practicable solutions. And it's here to stay. Um, as we see more and more clinicians are growing more more accepting of, of the digital solutions um, um, artificial intelligence has to offer. Mm, this is fascinating. And I'm, I'm curious, given that the pandemic has had such an impact on uh, clinicians' kind of appetite for innovation, and you named a whole bunch of opportunities in that space, um, what, what have been the lessons um, with regards to best practice in adopting such innovation, uh, particularly when you think about you know, workforce transformation um, or change management in these settings? At what stage have you seen kind of the adoption be most successful? Is there a need for early co-creation versus kind of a tech drop in in these environments um just basically at what point do you feel like the workforce is most comfortable being brought into the innovation process uh oh that's a really good question i think it's quite um situation specific um i think the sort of things we've done during pandemic have had firstly a very clear universal driver for change so everybody's affected by the same driver all at once um and you know, mm. unfortunately unfortunately most of you know most of our lives that's not the situation where we're all facing the same problem all at once so i'm not i'm not sure that that's going to apply to the same extent going forward um I think the, a lot of the work we have done, we've done in very small agile groups of you know, multi-professional groups. So some of the work I mentioned in pathology is involved, um, microbiologists, uh, laboratory staff, uh, laboratory IT, trust IT, business informatics, um, working in a team of usually sort of eight to 10 people on a particular project. Um, and really the key ingredient for success there was being able to not wait for a perfect plan before starting the work and the the, uh, you know ash mentions one of the key constraints in healthcare innovation which is that risk aversion that we have in the pandemic of course the risk of doing nothing was greater Um, and therefore there was a bit of latitude to not be quite so perfect in bringing in change um, I hope that we can sustain some of that because it, you know, it really is helpful to just try something out as long as you've got a way of failing safely, and then iteratively, continually improve it. You know, whatever whatever methodology you want to use for that, but um, that seems to be the most effective way of doing it. Is tolerance of uh, a modest degree of imperfection at the beginning, so that you can just get going, try it out, find out where it needs to be refined. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just just to extend on the same idea, uh, I think the biggest roadblock as a developer remains the translation between research and adoption into clinical practice. We certainly, like Shane mentioned, need that lower threshold for risk tolerance, if you will, but also the right governance policies to keep up with the changing uh, industrial revolution, if you will, the fourth, the Internet of Things. Yeah, really, really interesting. And 
the, the bit that I'm most kind of focused on in this conversation and want to unpick with you is what is in that innovation process, um, and especially in the context that you're describing where um, kind of risk appetite is shifting and there is more and more open-mindedness towards doing things differently at the back of the pandemic. I'm curious, what is practically important to you? What does ethical implementation of innovation mean to you on a day-to-day basis? I mean, innovation, I, I have a very broad definition of innovation. It, it's doing doing things that make things better. <laughs> so I have a lot of conversations with my, with my boss and with other executives about um, things which I would call invention rather than mm. innovation. So the, you know, the development of new products or uh, tools. Um, and that's, that's rather different than the mass adoption of new ways of working, which I would say is the, you know, that's the innovation and the transformation from, from innovation. So we, as a trust, we do all of, all of those, really. Um, I think arguably you get the biggest change from um, scouring the field to see what new technologies and tools are most effective, but also best fit for your local ecosystem. So I think it's very hard in a complex business like health, where every every hospital, every health centre, every GP practice is subtly different, to push technology down from the top. And there's a very, you know, there's a, uh, the battlefield is littered with the corpses of those kind of initiatives. Um, over many years, whereas I, I, what I observe is our clinicians are absolutely brimming with ideas for changing stuff, um, you know, and they've all got their feelers out into the technology horizons, the innovative SMEs and uh, technology companies that are producing new things that they could use, um, and and we don't have to work very hard to push them to adopt innovation. What we need to do is you know, see who is wanting to innovate and support them in, in the way that hopefully we're doing with Ash. Uh, I mean, yeah, the right, having the right framework to, the right fertile framework, if you will, to cultivate that innovation and mentality is, is certainly important. I think the UK government on the official website have, have, uh, have a writing about that. Uh, um, implementation of innovation, uh, like I mentioned, we're calling the fourth uh, industrial revolution, and um, you know, making sure that we use digitization, automation, and artificial intelligence in healthcare or otherwise, while making sure the people and the local ecosystem is protected. So, quite agree with Shane on that one. And I think it's got a this, Alina. There's some tests that have to be applied to you know i mean we'll call it ai in the broadest brush sense in the same way that we'd apply to the introduction of a new medicine or a new surgical technique in that you know it has to be doing something positive it has to be safe it has to have good evidence that it does what you think it does and it has to be adding some benefit to the user as well as to the patient because if it makes life you know if it's good for the patient but it makes life intolerably more complicated for the clinician uh, i would lay good hard cash that it, it wouldn't get adopted 
you know, there's a sort of set of criteria that we apply to uh, any new interventional change in healthcare that is this, exactly the same for AI. And I think quite often policymakers, particularly those that are sponsoring innovation on a national level, and there's a, you know, there's a whole debate about whether that's the right thing to do or not, um, get very hung up on the development of technology is the end point, whereas for us it's the utility of the technology in the care setting. Absolutely. I think that's a very, very important point. And I'm also curious on that front, what your perspective is on aligning incentives, especially uh, given what you ex- what you mentioned just now, um, kind of the importance of balancing benefit to the patient, also to the clinician. There's also financial benefits to the, to the overall health system. Is there a, a process in place that you feel like works really well at the moment or equally is there a gap um, that we can address um, through various kind of um, frameworks um, in in, in clinical settings to keep aligning these these perspectives? You you could use remote patient monitoring as an example because you mentioned earlier that appetite is increasing amongst clinicians for this, um, but how do you balance the appetite for patients uh, to adopt remote patient monitoring with this? Um, So I'm uh, curious what your thoughts are on this. Wow. Uh, Again, lots in that question. So in terms of of incentives, um, it's very interesting looking at things like the innovation and technology payment that uh, has just been superseded. My local experience of that is we looked at the technologies. There were a few apps and a few devices that got nationally pushed, for want of a better word. So a group of worthies had, had looked at them and said, these are a good thing, everybody should have them. And then, lo and behold, they appear on our doorstep with funding attached to them saying, you want to use these, don't you? They're great. When I took them around our clinicians in the different departments that would use them, almost universally, they said, oh, we've looked at that. And for this reason or that reason, we didn't take it up because it doesn't fit our local needs or we've got something better already or we've tried it and it has significant drawbacks in real world use. So actually, of you know, there were 18 or so of those um, and we probably took up one mm. in the trust. So from my perspective, I, if I, I was completely objective about that incentivized process, it failed. It wasted a huge amount of resource for, for little visible benefit. Whereas at the same time, we've implemented dozens and dozens and dozens of technology-led change projects in the trust, which were identified by local clinicians through their knowledge of current practice and emerging practice, their connections with industry, with colleagues in other institutions. And I, you know, my experiences are expert clinicians are also expert horizon scanners in their field of practice. So what they needed was not um, somebody coming and passing them a technology and saying this is good for you. It was help when they did identify an innovation they thought would add the value, the triple value that you've identified for patients, clinicians and the organisation. It was supporting them to bring that into use. Quite a lot of that was in writing business cases. Mm. So, you know, the, the business case approach is a lovely structured way of looking at the case for change, the, the 
different options that you could look at, the benefits of each one, the risks and costs of each one, and making a balanced decision about whether it's better than what you've got now. Um, but, but clinicians find those sort of processes rather onerous and challenging. So the innovation system that we've got in the trust, yes, it looks at inventions and it looks at adoption of national projects, but it does a large part of its work in supporting our clinicians to bring their ideas for innovation into use. I mean, certainly any, any innovation or invention process must stem from an unmet clinical need. And most of, let's call it AI work these days is in silico evaluation. And like I said, the, the biggest stumbling block is the translation between good research, showing the model works, it's better and safer, but somehow not being adopted into clinical practice. There, there's that gap that we need to need to fill with you know, right framework or just getting the clinicians on board. I think, I mean, what I've realized that if you want to sell something AI related, we shouldn't call it AI. There's some sort of fatigue to it. Mm. And it doesn't matter. Let's stop calling it AI and let's just stop making nice, efficient clinical workflow for the clinicians that meets their needs. And they won't care whether it's AI or anything else. Mm, very, very good point. And how does that translate be beyond the hospital? I completely understand your point for and kind of argument for clinician-led um, identification of innovation and then adoption of innovation. How does that go wider into primary care, for example, or into community care? Have you had any experiences of connecting the dots across the different levels of the health system? Not specifically in AI. I think in population health management, the sort of you know data analytics end of things, yes. Uh, during the pandemic, we've got some very good examples. I think there are many across the country of using combined data sets to identify vulnerable uh, residents to target support uh, to those who are isolated or uh, in need of have got particular needs. And I think that bridges the gap between different settings of healthcare, but also health and social care and the voluntary sector. Um, so I think that that's good. I think the, the remote monitoring is a good kind of, uh, you know, cross setting initiative because that has to involve both primary and community care and support from acute clinicians, particularly in responding to any you know, deviation from the parameters that have been set, um, and also in the safe selection of patients. I think um, remote monitoring has got a very checkered history. Um, there's been you know, many hundreds of millions of pounds poured into uh, monitoring people on the off chance that they're going to deteriorate. Um, and there is a real, there's a, a, the Bayesian's prior probability is the challenge there because you've got um, a, a large population of people who could get into crisis and only a few of them will get into crisis at any, in any one time period. But predicting which ones they are to monitor is very difficult because they're, the prior probability of any of them going off is always very low. So what's tended to happen is a lot of money spent monitoring the wrong people. 
Whereas I think there's a difference with what's been done during the pandemic, which is you've got a cohort of people who are already ill, and therefore yeah. their prior probability of deterioration is is already very high, and therefore the value of monitoring them is that much higher. So I think that model works, whereas the kind of general monitoring of a population, it it doesn't work in that sort of Bayesian statistical model. I mean, there's certainly an emphasis on remote monitoring because um, from what I understand, healthcare is shifting from, um, if you will, treating illness to sustaining wellness. I mean, if you look at the NHS long-term plan, there's there's a lot of emphasis on, on preventive medicine and community care because we want to keep the patients outside the hospital, if you will. I mean, healthcare today is episodic. I mean, you usually go months or years at end without being looked at by a doctor and you only see a doctor when when symptoms of your ill health manifest. But however, that's not what health really is. It is a continuous process. So while it's challenging and comes with its own set of um, um, issues that we we have to tackle, like Shane mentioned, um, the focus is certainly building a more proactive model of healthcare uh, than a reactive one, if you will. Mm. I think there is a you know there's a big niche there for um, technology for potentially for you know, facets of AI. And I completely agree with Ash. I think the term AI is so broad as to be useless. We need to be much more specific Mm. about the particular technological approaches that are being applied to a particular problem. And again, I'd go back to my analogy of, you know, it's like a medicine that, you know, a drug that we prescribe targets a very specific disease. And the relationship between the drug and disease is a very tight linkage and I think it's the same for technology interventions in health is they need to be assessed and um, targeted in a rather pinpoint fashion rather than this sort of broad brush idea that you can sprinkle technology on the population and suddenly everybody's healthier or healthcare costs diminish because I think that's that's a fantasy. Um, I think where there is a great niche is that kind of self-empowerment uh, for managing your own health, and we've certainly seen a rapid growth in M Health apps for people with long-term conditions to, uh, you know, monitor their own progress uh, of their, you know, uh, physiological and pathology parameters, um, and to get advice for self-care through the apps, and also potentially to be able to share their data with their clinician at contact points or remotely Um, and I think that is very useful in engaging people as active participants in the management of their own health. I'm slightly more skeptical as to whether the um, the monitoring itself actually improves uh, the outcomes for people. I suspect it's the engagement that it drives that is the benefit. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of, I mean, I'm obviously biased because I work in this space, but I think that's one of the prime examples of where automation, and I also am not keen on using the uh, the term AI too widely, automation uh, can really make a difference to the volumes of data that clinician has to deal with. There's a big difference between 
passive and active remote monitoring. Yes. And ideally, you, you really want machines to be taking care of the large volumes of data you need to sift through to identify the few events that really deserve a clinician's attention. Well, uh, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you to an extent, but it's really quite a complicated. That's quite a complicated statistical analysis challenge because the the, the sort of parameters that we're measuring, particularly physiological ones, I think um, pathology parameters like blood test results are much mm-hmm. have much narrower ranges. But things like blood pressure and pulse rate have really quite wide ranges in normal healthy life. Yeah. Um, and to to use algorithms to identify abnormality just looking at physiological parameters is creates a lot of false alerts. Absolutely. If I get up and climb the stairs, my pulse rate will will rise, you know, might rise well above my resting average. Uh, my blood pressure will go up to compensate for the increased cardiac output. Um, and all of those will be abnormal, but I'm perfectly healthy. And I'm just doing, like, undertaking a, a you know, physiological challenge, which is not disease related. So I think that I, I don't think it's impossible, um, but there are very few examples where that's been made to work. So I think mm. you've got examples like the, you know, the, the um, Apple Watch monitoring for atrial fibrillation, which is, you know, that's great. Fantastic. Whether it justifies the price of you know, <laughs> Apple Watches for everybody, I'm more sceptical there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Uh, the need for contextualization of mm. information is massive. Um, and we also see that on a daily basis uh, with the kind of elderly populations that we monitor and work with. The, the difference in measurements that you can observe at the back of kind of behavioral abnormalities um, in these settings is massive. Um, and if there is anything that AI needs to fill the gap of is exactly that interpretation and contextualization. So totally agree with you. I think for the for the end of the conversation, it would be really fascinating for our listeners to uh, just pick a practical example of uh, the type of innovation, Ash, that you're leading on and just share your insights on how you um, have kind of taken on the role of innovator alongside your clinical practice and how you're thinking about um, designing something in this space. So I've been working in this space for the last three years now, and I have developed quite a few portfolio projects previously to good end. Um, However, my work with um, SNET, uh, East Suffolk North Essex uh, Foundation Trust, is is of clinical use case. It is a multidisciplinary effort between clinicians, business informatics, data analysts, scientists, and of course, the the management team like Shane and others. Um, The goal is to build an AI-based clinical decision support system to recognize sepsis early and optimize further care. Now, of course, a lot of work has already been done in this space, and most of it is talking research. So this stems from an unmet need of the clinicians to buy themselves time for treating a deadly conditions like sepsis. I think going ahead um, is quite important to be working in an environment 
where where AI progression is encouraged in trust like SNFT and um, really um, um, doing our bit to you know improve automation and digitization. And what what is the biggest challenge uh, when you take on a project like this? Well, I suppose it would have to be data, data gathering, because um, it's so scattered, it's all over the place, the quality of data, missing data that remains a challenge. But I suppose that's true for any data science and machine learning project outside of healthcare as well. Um, the other important bit would be the legislative framework to be to be have the right rules and regulations to approve a project. I mean, just recently, one week ago, one of one of the other sepsis recognition AI systems, which was thought to do well, has been proven to not be any better than the gold standards we have now. So, what are we measuring the systems against? Is it really helping us? Is it really safer? Uh, that remains another challenge, uh, you know, if it's actually benefiting the patients. Mm. So a large, so there needs to be, I, I, there needs to be a system in place to encourage large-scale prospective trials, much like Shane mentioned about pharmaceutical industry, um, so that we can validate the results and improve continuously. And do you think you can um, drive for that level of validation on a trust level, or is that something that needs to happen more nationally for your specific project? Oh, for my specific project, obviously, the larger the number, the better. But it's not just about the quantity of data. It's also about its quality. I mean, the, the common mm -hmm. axiom in data science is garbage in, garbage out. So it, it doesn't matter what we, what number and what patients are we, we're feeding into the machine learning algorithm. It's also about um, are we getting the right set of patients? Are we achieving that clinical end? Um, are we are we actually you know beating the current standards of practice that exist? By beating, I mean is it's more efficient and is it safer? So it would matter less if it's on a trust or a national level, but it would matter more if we are it would matter more if we are designing the research study as we intended to, as the clinicians intended to. Mm, absolutely. Brilliant. I think as a as a kind of final note, it would be great to get your thoughts on what each of you is most excited about um, seeing in, in, in healthcare over the next couple of years. We're obviously coming out of a very, very tough period um, and uh, there are loads of lessons learned and loads of transformation that's happening at the back of that period. Um, so what, what's keeping you most excited moving forward? I am very excited about um, population level analytics and our ability to um, do multivariate analysis of drivers of ill health or responses to health interventions. So I'll give you an example of a project that I'm working on at the moment. We have a, an area uh, in our patch that has uh, very high levels of deprivation and very poor uptake of preventative care for diabetes 
uh, so there's a high number of people with diabetes, but they tend to get relatively poor access to the things that prevent them developing the complications. And the reasons for that are many and varied. There are cultural reasons. There are, you know, the services in that area are, uh, like GP practices are less available than they are in more affluent areas, you know, the, the inverse care law. There might be, uh, you know, health beliefs or uh, models of illness and health in groups in that population which don't fit with the way we offer care to them. So I think we can we can certainly understand the need a lot better by the use of data analytic techniques. But we can also try novel interventions at a scale, a small scale, where previously we wouldn't be able to detect a difference because we didn't have the data available in that accessible, very granular way that we're we're getting now. Um, and therefore, we'll be able to do that kind of plan, do, study, act, improvement cycle of change much faster than we can currently. And that gives us a way to build much more bespoke healthcare for our populations. And I think that's really exciting. That's fascinating. What sort of timeframes do you think uh, this type of project is moving on? Well, I think that one will will, will see some initial uh, results in a year, but it's a continuous improvement project. So it doesn't have a kind of end point where you say, right, that's done, we can move on to the next thing. Um, but it, you know, if we can get that kind of level of insight and ability to do test and improvement, um, that would be a game changer because at the moment we only operate at the level of macro um, system or policy changes. Mm. And we then don't understand whether they have worked in exactly the way we expected because we can't relate that to the individual data. Mm. Whereas now we have that opportunity. Amazing. Well, well, for me, I think um, at a time of widespread clinician burnout and acute staff shortage, I think the AI offers a potential to automate some of the workload, the repetitive, non-empathetic tasks, as I like to call them. And that will significantly reduce the burden of routine tasks. And this could leave doctors free to engage in more interesting work, whether it be more meaningful doctor-patient interactions or just picking up that diagnosis early to save that extra life. Or perhaps with remote monitoring, gathering that data continuously that once, imper once imperceptible changes are now acted upon quicker. So quite excited about all and any forms of uh, healthcare progression. <laughs> love that. I love the repetitive, non-empathetic tasks. I think yeah. that's, that's the definition of AI for you in healthcare. It is, it is quite certainly. Amazing. I think on that note, thank you both very, very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. I think our listeners learned a lot about very varied perspectives and examples of how innovation, AI, automation in general can transform and is transforming healthcare practice um, and we really really appreciate your perspective thank you very much Alina. thanks for having us thank you for having us Alina. thank you thank you 
Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to Ethical AI. If you want to learn more about how Febris are changing healthcare delivery with AI, you can head to febris.com and check out the show notes if you want to follow Alina and Febris to hear about the latest in AI and healthcare.